this past week you have made uh, probably thousands of seemingly insignificant decisions. You, you can't even remember them all. But those seemingly insignificant decisions in reality have very minutely affected the course of your life and maybe the course of someone else's life. The author of the book of Esther is trying to open your eyes to the fact that through these small everyday decisions, God is working in our lives to affect the destiny of humans. Your destiny, but the destiny of people around you. And through everyday decisions, God is advancing the mission of His kingdom. The author of Esther is also asserting that there is an unseen hand at work. And that unseen hand is God Himself. And God can neither be explained, nor can He be canceled. In short, God is the power working behind human history. The book of Esther is designed around a literary structure called peripety. Peripety is a term that describes a sudden turn of events that radically changes or completely reverses the outcome of a story. I often call it plot twist. Peripety is a, just a complete reversal of everything you thought was going to happen. Let's recap from the last few weeks very quickly. The Persian court, which is where the story is set, the Persian court is filled with palace intrigue. There is sex, aplenty. There is scandal, aplenty. There are plots to assassinate the king. There is a harem filled with beautiful women. And in the providence of God, Esther has now become the queen of Persia. Esther is living a double life. Esther has a double identity. And at chapter 5, no one knows it but us. Her, her father and her and us. No one else in the story knows that Esther is really a Jew. There is a villain who's been introduced now. The villain is an anti-Semite. He is a Jew hater. His name is Haman. And it just so happens that he's the second most powerful person in the kingdom. Haman is about to launch a holocaust against the Jews. Last week we talked about Kristallnacht. The night, November 9th, 1938, that launched the Holocaust in Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Austria. Well, Haman has his own Kristallnacht ready to go. And he's just about to go ask the king to launch it. Everything is being set in motion. And the king is clueless that the Jews are the intended target. Haman says, there is a people in your kingdom, and they need to be taken care of. They're a problem. 
The king has said, okay, you're the second most powerful God in the government. If you think we've got a problem, take care of it. Doesn't know it yet. It's the Jews that are the intended target. Now, word is spreading quickly. Now, the word's going to get out that the Jews are going to be the target. Now, what the king doesn't know, what Haman doesn't know, what only we know as the reader is that the queen is a Jewess. She's going to be right in the crosshairs of Haman's edict. Esther now has come to a decision. Should she pretend not to be a Jew and fly under the radar and live her life in the palace of pleasure and power? Or should she come out of the closet and identify as one of God's people? To identify as God's people clearly puts her under a death sentence. To barge into the king uninvited clearly puts her under a death sentence. She realizes that she's under a death sentence probably no matter what. Her father or uncle Mordecai and her have been talking back and forth. And she has said, uncle or dad, I'm going to go in now. And I'm going to go in uninvited. I'm going to identify with God's people. I'm going to come out as the Jew that I am. I'm going to come out as God's covenant people. And if I die, I die. That's the end of chapter number four. <clears throat> the story's about to move very rapidly now. Remember the previous Queen Vashti was deposed for breaking the rules of court. That's what got her crown removed. Now Esther is about to also break the rules of court. Chapter 5 opens with a table for three. This is the moment of truth. Everyone's been fasting and praying. The author has the readers holding their collective breaths. Esther doesn't know if she's going to live or die through the next few minutes. She's going to barge into the king's throne room unannounced and uninvited where axemen wait at the door to kill whoever barges in unannounced, even if you're the queen. Esther 5, verse 1. Here we go. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, and she stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. <coughs> it's like football players in a tunnel waiting to run through the banner out onto the field. Here we go. When I push through that door, either my head comes off or I'm accepted. Don't you think there's some tension here? Perspiration, beating up, psyching herself up. And in she goes. The king was sitting on the royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court... He was pleased with her. And he held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter. Right here is where you can go, whew. All right, he's not going to behead her. He's not mad at her. She's found favor in his sight. Verse 3. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even half of the kingdom will be given you. She replies, if it pleases the king, let the king 
together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. The entire book of Esther is built around the motif of banquets. Beads of perspiration are running down Esther's back. She's taking life and death risks right now. And from this point forward in the story, Esther now takes the role as the dominant character. She is portrayed now from this moment forward as the power driving the resolution of the plot. But don't forget the author has also layered this so that God is the power that's moving the people. She's won the throne through her prowess in the bedroom. She has won the throne through her beauty, through her interpersonal relationships with everybody in the palace. She has won the favor of everyone that she's come in contact with by kindness and by graciousness. Now, let's make a little personal application right here. If we're honest about ourselves this morning, uh, there are not many of us in this room that are going to win people's favor through our natural beauty. Uh, that's, I mean, let's be honest, that's, we are not maybe the most beautiful and handsome people in the world. But here's what I want to say to you. Do not underestimate the power of a smile. I, I would just dare you to challenge this tomorrow at work or wherever you go. Plaster a smile on your face and greet people with kindness all day long and watch what's reciprocated back to you. Never underestimate the power of graciousness and kindness and presenting yourself well. And never underestimate the power of building relationships, which means taking an interest in other people. This is actually a New Testament command where it tells every one of us, look not only on your own interests, but look on the interests of others. And the author is showing us Esther's transformation before your eyes. Esther has gone from a person of weak character to a person of heroic courage. To a person of weak character to a person now who has political skill. Uh, she's swimming with the sharks now. I mean, there's no bigger league to swim in than what she's doing right now. And you're wondering, wow, in one chapter, how has this transformation in her life been accomplished? What was her big defining moment? Her defining moment was when she decided to identify with God's covenant and God's covenant people. From that moment, she is never the same person through the rest of the story. There she stands, the most beautiful woman in the world. She looks at King Xerxes and she says, Honey, I've made your favorite dinner. In my chamber, they've got prime rib with au jus and horseradish sauce on the side. I've got a loaded baked potato in there. I've got a wedge salad the size of your head on the table. We've got creme brulee. We've got lots of wine. The candles are lit and the chamber is being filled with soft music right now. Honey, you've worked hard. I have not seen you, according to the record of chapter 4, in 30 days. 
honey, come to dinner. I barged in here and risked my life to invite you to supper. Come to my chamber, it's all ready. And bring Hitler, uh, Haman with you. And I will set a table for three. Now that's the story. That's where you are. Verse 6. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Okay, now honey, you didn't just want to invite me to dinner. What is your petition? You know it will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied and said, Listen, my petition and my request is this. King, if you regard me with favor, and if if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, here's what I'm going to ask. Don't don't hear, let's don't talk business. I'll tell you what, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to yet another banquet that I will prepare, and then I will answer the king's question. King, this was so nice. Hadn't seen you in 30 days, honey. Let's not spoil this nice moment with kingdom talk and politics and business. Let's have another glass of wine. Come back tomorrow. We'll do this again, and then we'll talk shop. How about that? The king's like, that sounds like a good plan. Give me a kiss, honey. And that's what the evening looks like. The party breaks up. In the next scene, Haman's getting into his limo and heading to the house. Let me read a little bit about Haman now. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and he observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against that stinking Jew, Mordecai. But nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. I'll get him tomorrow. He restrained himself and went home. And he called together his friends and his wife. He got all of his family and his friends together for a little after-party party at his house. Verse 11. And at the party, at the after-party, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, And all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the nobles and the officials. And, I feel like Billy May is selling something right here. Wait, there's more. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to a banquet that she gave. I was just in the king's residence with the queen and the king well he's name dropping and 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 just boasting like like anything and she has invited me along with the king again tomorrow verse 13 but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as i see that jew mordecai sitting in the king's gate his wife zeresh and all of his friends said to him well there's a simple solution to that guy have a pole set up reaching up to 50 cubits And ask the king tomorrow morning if he'll let you impale Mordecai on the pole. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. The suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the pole set up ready to execute Mordecai tomorrow morning. Now, at this point in the story, Esther has come out 
And she's about to identify with God's people. King doesn't know it yet, but everybody else is about to know it. They're praying. They're fasting. And at this point in the story, I want to equate Esther's decision to identify herself with God's people to your decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Each of us comes to defining moments in our lives. Moments when we have to decide whether we're going to live as pagans or whether we're going to live and identify with God's covenant and God's covenant people. Esther's decision put her life at great risk. Yet it was that very decision that gave her the strength and the courage to face the king unannounced, uninvited. It was that decision that opened the way for the deliverance ultimately of God's people, which is where the story is obviously heading. What I want you to see at this point in the story is when she decided to identify with God, when she decided to live in God's covenant as one of his covenant people, when she decided to make her stand and identify with God's people, she became a blessing to everyone in her community. Now, I'm just wondering out loud how our community might be affected by each one of us identifying as God's people publicly this week. I wonder how our community, since there's both a public and a private aspect to being God's child, A lot of people say, well, I'm God's child in here. I just don't want anybody to know. That's not the story the Bible's telling. As a matter of fact, the story the Bible's telling is that when people tried to keep their uh, covenant relationship with God a secret, God puts them into a situation where they have to come out of the closet and and to make a decision. Are we going to live as God's covenant people openly? And you say, well, I'm just content to live under the radar. Don't be shocked if God doesn't shake your life up a little bit and put you in a situation where you're going to have to come out and declare where your real allegiances are. So personally, publicly it's about to save a people, but personally, Esther's decision to identify with God's people transformed her completely. She went from being a woman taken into a harem with no control over her life whatsoever, to now she is a woman of dignity, a woman with courage, and a woman who is living with the power of God, infusing her life. I want to remind you that that is our divine vocation, to be living images of God. And when you decide to live out your destiny as God's new covenant people, you're living at the very height of, of what God created you to be. Now many of you already know the story of Esther. So you know how the story ends. But at this moment Esther doesn't know how the story ends. She doesn't know what's going to happen when she walks into the palace. She doesn't know what happens when she starts talking to the king. Uh, her decision could just have well as ended in her execution right there before the king. You say he'd never do it. She's beautiful. So was Vashti. That's the whole point of the author opening with Vashti's being deposed in chapter 1. So that you would understand the dire straits that Esther is in. The king is not above (laughs) deposing his queen. There's a lot more fish in the sea is his attitude. I got a harem full of them. Okay. Just 
property is all they are. And so he's not above killing Esther. And you don't know how the story's going to end. Esther certainly doesn't know what's going to happen moment by moment. But what she does know is I'm going to be God's people and I'm going to come openly and declare it. Now, the New Testament, I don't want to preach a whole other sermon about this, but the New Testament has a lot to say about this. Jesus had a whole lot to say about a life worth living. Jesus had a whole lot to say about finding life and losing life. And I'm afraid that many of us are chasing the American dream more than we're pursuing our calling and our divine vocation to be living images of God as His covenant people. They are not the same thing. Being a Republican or a Democrat doesn't come close to being a child of God. They're not in the same stratosphere. Being a child of God is the highest identity you can live. Living images of our God. That's the highest purpose of mankind. That's why you were made. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, Jesus said, Mark eight thirty five, For whoever wants to save their life, what's that? They'll lose it. You know what? And that's what you see around you. You see the world living for popularity and fame and, and all of this. And what you know is what Solomon told you. Vanity, emptiness, worthlessness. It's not a life worth living in the end. I'm not saying life's not worth living. I'm saying that kind of life is not worth living. Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, they will save their life. You will find a life worth living when you identify with Christ and with his people and with his gospel. The great crisis of our present generation is that liberty has brought us to carelessness. It has brought us to softness. It has brought us to... Uh, uh, lethargy, lackadaisical attitude. We've not had to make a stand. We've not had to be a strong spiritual people. But now that we're easing rapidly into post-Christian America, I'm a little bit excited for us. Because now you're going to be the minority. And now you're going to have to learn to live like Daniel and Joseph and Esther and, and, and Peter and James and John. And now we're going to get a little bit of taste in the coming generations of what the rest of the world has had to live with. You're like, oh, it's terrible. Well, no, but it builds a good, strong Christian people. Because you have, to, you, have, you have to take some risks. You can't just fly under the radar. And my frustration is that most believers today are virtually indistinguishable from pagans. The thinking today is, we'll just call on Jesus for salvation and forgiveness. I think that's something I want. But... I don't want conflict, so I'm never going to identify or live for God's purposes. I'll just fly under the radar and go along with the flow of life and go along with culture and be happy by avoiding all conflicts. Yeah, but see, it doesn't work out that way. That doesn't produce the intended outcome you think it will produce. What that produces in you is it builds a divided heart. What it produces in you is it builds despondent emotions what that does in the life of the believer is it creates a lack of purpose a void in your life what it results in in a believer who tries to live this way 
is powerless living. You don't feel God's power. You don't hear your prayers being answered. You don't feel a, a connection with God. You don't feel the pulsing power of God working through your life because you're trying to live that double identity. You're trying to live a secret version of Christianity. In the original decision where you put your faith in in Jesus Christ and then in all of your subsequent decisions, we're aligning ourselves with God's covenant in Christ. And in the subsequent, we make so much about the original decision to receive Christ and it's incredibly important. But I want us as a church to talk about now what? There's other decisions to be made now that we've been saved. And in all the subsequent decisions we make after salvation, those decisions are aligning us with God's covenant in Christ and with God's people and with God's mission. And we're allowing the Spirit of God to transform us to become the men and the women that God has created us to be. Now, we all need to believe on Jesus Christ to be God's new covenant people. I get that. But then once we are forgiven and accepted into God's kingdom, every believer now needs a transformation. And that's what the discipleship process is about, is to help kickstart the process of transformation in your life that begins at the moment of salvation and will not end until you see Jesus with your own eyes. It's now a process of transformation. You say, well, what needs to be transformed about me? You tell me. Uh, I think probably our thinking needs to be transformed. I would imagine that most of our attitudes need to be transformed. I would imagine that most of our actions could use some transformation. I know that our speech could use some transformation. And if only your sins have been forgiven, yes, you're saved. I get that. But what about becoming like Christ now? Just because you got saved doesn't mean you became like Christ. Now you need transformation. Is that also on your agenda for the future? Transformation? I can assure you it's on God's agenda for you. And I want you to align your agenda with God's. Character transformation that we all need is a work of the Holy Spirit in our human lives. It is Holy Spirit who comes into us at the moment of salvation that wants to transform us. And it is His job. He is the transformer. But you have to yield control to Him. You have to learn to hear His voice. You have to comply. You have to allow Him to take you on that journey to become like Christ. And it is Holy Spirit in your life that brings the character of God and puts it into your own life. This is called the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that takes, well, He is God, and He brings to bear God's attributes in your life through this transformation. So that each of our lives begins to manifest fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And without spiritual transformation, none of us are going to attain the full potential of our human destiny. Let me make it really simple. Without yielding control to God's Spirit, 
You cannot become the people God has created you to become. And you cannot become the change agents in this world God wants you to be. You cannot lift society to its potential. You cannot cultivate your garden here as God wants you to. You cannot make this world a better place. And you cannot fulfill the mission of God unless you yield to the Spirit. Remember, you're destined to be living images of God. Esther's decision was a life or death decision. And as soon as she identifies herself as a Jew, she falls under Haman's death sentence. Listen, the dark forces of evil are against God's people. Evil exists in this world. And it doesn't exist as an abstraction. Evil exists in people. There are evil people at work in this world. And we could just call the names through history as we look back who have had evil intents and wished evil upon God's people. And Haman is one of those dark forces of evil. Now, in this age in which you live, when we use the term God's people, the Jews are not exclusively God's people in this age. When Jesus Christ came, we entered into a new covenant now. The old Sinai covenant has been superseded by the new covenant. And in the new covenant, the new covenant is your covenant. But in the new covenant, you still have forces of evil, but now they're not aligned simply against the Jews. Now they're aligned against the work of God. Just this week, one of our disciples sent me a picture out of Myanmar, a, a Baptist church that's as big as this entire property. Humongous thing up in the jungle in the Chin Hills, burned completely to the ground. Burned completely to the ground in the Civil War. You say, what's happening? Just pure evil is happening. Just pure evil. If you're a woman, it's not safe to walk the streets. Pure evil is happening. When you take a stand for Jesus and God's people, you are engaged in a spiritual battle. Now, a lot of the New Testament talks about this, and that's probably a whole other separate sermon as well. Peter and all of these guys in the New Testament, John, Paul, they have a lot to say about when you align with Christ, you, it's not, you've gone to the, you haven't gone to the playground, you've gone to the battlefield now. And you have a real enemy that stands against you, but greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And Jesus showed us that even in death, he had the power of resurrection. He is life, and our union with Christ guarantees us the victory of life in the end. All right, that's the table for three. You ready? A reversal of fortune, chapter 6. Now remember peripety. A seemingly insignificant event is about to happen that's going to reverse the entire outcome of the story. The story hinges on an event that is so common that probably every person in this room has experienced the event. Insomnia. You say, wait a second, the whole world, insomnia. The whole world's about to be changed because of one event of peripety, the king has insomnia. Here we go. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought into him and read to him. Maybe they can read me to sleep with history. So he's up in the night. Someone comes in to read to him. Coincidence number one, the king has insomnia. 
Coincidence number two, he doesn't ask for them to read Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Instead, he says, I'd like you to read from the Chronicles of my reign. Coincidence number three, the reader happens to open to the page where Mordecai saves the king's life. And it was found recorded, verse 2, that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Tirish, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. The king then said, wait a second, is that the end of the story? And the, the guy reading says, yeah, that's all that's here. And the king says, well, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for saving my life? They replied, nothing has been done for him. The king's like, well, that's so unlike me. I always, you know, give the Navy Cross to people who saved my life and give them great honor. No, we didn't do anything for this guy. Nothing is recorded in the book of Chronicles. Coincidence number four, Xerxes failed to reward Mordecai. Evidently, the king gets no sleep this night because the sun is now coming up. And as the sun is coming up, the government officials are now coming into the palace, arriving to do their work. And one government official is so excited about killing the Jews that he's come in early so he can get a head start on the Holocaust. Esther 6, verse 4. What's been done? Nothing. The king says to his servants, who's in the court? Go out there and see if any employees have come to work yet. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace He's come early to ask the king about impaling Mordecai on a pole that he set up for him. He's come in early to ask to kill Mordecai. His attendants answered, King Haman is standing out there in the court right now. He's come in early. The king says, bring him in. <clears throat> Haman comes into the king's private chamber. Coincidence 5. Haman arrives early to ask permission to kill. Verse 6, when Haman entered, the king said, Haman, I've got a question for you. You're a big shot around here, number two in the kingdom. Let me ask you a question. What should be done for a man the king delights to honor? I want to honor somebody. What would a king like, what should be done if a guy like me wants to really honor somebody? Now Haman thought, well, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So Haman said, well, here's what I would like. For the man the king delights to honor, he should have them bring the royal robe that the king has worn and put it on him. And a horse the king has ridden. One of those horses with the royal crown. They put crowns on the horses with big plumes on them. With a royal crest placed on his head. Verse 9. And then let uh, the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. And let them robe the man that the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on a horse through the city streets. And let a crier cry out, This is what the king does when he wants to honor a man this is what the king does to the man he delights to honor. King Xerxes says, now that is a plan right there. That is a plan. So here's what I want you to do, Haman. 
go at once, get a robe, get my horse, do just as you have suggested, and honor Mordecai the Jew who's sitting in the king's gate. Now, if that's not peripety, the whole thing has flipped completely around. Do not neglect anything you have commanded, the king said. Verse 11, and Haman got the robe, and Haman got the horse, and he robed Mordecai, and he led him. Can you see Haman with the reins of the horse? This is what the king does with a man he wants to honor. So disgusted and so dejected at having to honor the man he came in early to kill. This is what the king does to a man he wants to honor. I bet that was the quickest walk he ever took. Okay? The story moves forward quickly. Verse 12. And afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He went right back to work. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he told Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends everything that had happened. Oh, it's terrible. And his advisors and his wife Zeresh said, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Now, I don't have time to unpack this, but I told you that Mordecai was of the tribe of Benjamin Saul's seed, uh, royal seed, and that this other guy is an Amalekite from Agag, and that they had an ancient clash, and God had already ruled that the Amalekites would never overtake uh, the Jews, that the Jews would overtake. The, you cannot go against God's edict. Even though you're number two in the kingdom, they're already saying, Woo, this is not playing out the way you thought it would. So we need time to think. We need to make a new plan. And while they were still talking, verse 14, the king's eunuchs have arrived and they've hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther has prepared. There's no time for a plan. I mean, by the time he got home and washed his face and cried it all out, I mean, the, the secret service has pulled up and he for, he's got another banquet tonight with the king and Esther and he's being whisked away immediately to the banquet. Despite having all the power of the Persian Empire at his disposal, his carefully laid plot to kill God's people is about to be turned against him because the king had insomnia. Now the author is trying to communicate something to you. The author of the book of Esther is communicating that miracles are things that God does sometimes, not very often. But human decisions and their resulting actions are always being used by God all the time. God is the unseen hand working behind seemingly insignificant decisions and details of our lives that turn out later to be significant after all. You see, in the ancient polytheistic cultures, uh, those are cultures with many gods, idol gods, Human affairs could be turned upside down if one God overpowered another God. There was constantly a struggle between the gods in their eyes. Does that make sense? Uh, 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 destiny was fickle, uh, uh, capricious. Outcomes were unpredictable because from the point of view of the pagans, you never knew which God was in control at any time. Throw another virgin in the volcano. Here we go again. Why? Appease all the gods... Sacrificed all, you never know. Uh, and, and even the Greeks said, oh, what about if we forgot a God? Well, to the unknown God, we make an altar now. 
Try to cover all of your bases. Now, along with the author, followers of Christ are monotheistic. We believe there is only one true God. And it is through the lenses of monotheism that you must read and interpret not only history, not only the book of Esther, but also your own life. There are several uh, let me say it this way the reversal of fortunes is happening when we make decisions and God acts in those decisions God has a role in human history God is working and he's bringing outcomes into line with his word let me say it another way God made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. This is where we are in the Old Testament in the book of Esther. God has made a covenant pact with his people at Mount Sinai. God will always be faithful to his covenant. This is what we're learning. You say, yeah, but his people. I know, despite the fact that God's people broke their side of the covenant, God remains faithful to his promises. I'm going to say it several different ways so we're sure we got it. Our God is so great that He can work without miracles. Maybe we've had it wrong, always saying, well, I wish I could see a miracle. Your God's so great, He can work without miracles. Your God's so great that He can work through billions of people, making billions of ordinary decisions, and even through all of that, billions of decisions, God can accomplish His plans It is no big deal for God to deliver an entire race through one king's insomnia. It's bigger than a miracle. That's what I'm saying about our God. God is so big that he can work through one woman who is taken to the king's bedroom against her will. You say, well, how does that work out? You're reading it. She was powerless. She goes along with what has to happen. You say, well, how will that turn out for Romans 8, 28? All things work together. She's about to save a whole people because of the circumstance. You see, the thesis of the book of Esther is that God is keeping his word to his covenant people. This is the thesis. So, so let me ask you this morning, are you one of God's covenant people? Are you one of these covenant people? Is it not also true that God has worked in your own life through small, seemingly insignificant events that were unexpected? Is it not also true of you? Let me just use one example. What are the chain of events that led you to put your faith in Jesus Christ? How did that happen? I wish everybody could stand up right now and tell their story. Because it would tell just like this. Let me tell you one quick story. A woman, like you, invites a co-worker friend to church. Just a decision. They both have teenage sons. The teenage sons become acquainted only one son then invites the other son 
to come to youth camp next week. That's how Steve Peters came to faith in Jesus Christ. But then the youth pastor goes to Steve's house after camp to talk about baptism. That's how Susan Peters becomes Susan Harold <laughs> and comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And then time passes. And then all of Steve and Heather's kids come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then all of Susan's kids come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then a few years later, Andrew's in India leading people to Jesus Christ. And then a few years later, Jack's in Romania leading people to Christ. And then a few years later, Bailey's in India leading people to Christ. Listen, you're going to ask some Indians someday when you meet them, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And they're going to say some team from Cornerstone came to our village. Walked into our school. And it's going to be some of these people right here in this room. Hundreds come to faith because one woman makes a decision in 1987 that looks really insignificant and says to another woman, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? And it sets in motion a chain of events that God uses for his glory and for his kingdom. You say, how does that happen? That's the power of our God. I'm going to say it another way. Any third-rate demon can do a miracle once in a while. I've been in demonic countries where they reanimate the dead bodies. You don't even want to know some of the stuff I've dealt with. You wouldn't sleep at night. People have been dead for a while. And they come and put the demon in them and the body comes back. And listen, there's stuff going on out there you ain't ever seen. Any third-rate demon can do a miracle here and there. But only Yahweh God can work in every human circumstance and in every human decision to further his kingdom and keep his covenant with his people. We living on planet earth, we're, we, we should expect nothing but death down here because we're living on a planet in complete rebellion against God. But you and I are living right now the ultimate peripety. You and I are living the ultimate reversal of fortune. All because of another seemingly ordinary event. A young couple had to go to Bethlehem to register for the census and pay their taxes. What could be more ordinary than that? Anybody stand in line at the DMV to get your driver's license renewed lately? What could be more mundane and ordinary than that? And because they had to do that, a baby was born in Bethlehem. The baby grows up to be a man. He's crucified on a cross outside of Jerusalem. He's buried, and then fortunes are reversed when he rises from the grave. The cross and the empty tomb become the hinge of human history, the pivot point of human destiny, where eternal life springs out of death and human sorrow and suffering are forever turned into joy because of Jesus Christ. Like the ancient covenant God made at Sinai with the Jews, 
a new covenant has now been made. And it's been made with all people who will put their faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, you become God's people in a covenant with Almighty God through Jesus Christ. You are in a covenant relationship with God and that covenant cannot be annulled. God will keep His covenant to you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will show kindness to you. He will pour His love upon you. Paul is trying to drive this point home in the book of Romans. He's speaking to Christians who are suffering. Listen to what Paul says to them. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That should be your theme song. Yeah, well I got laid off. Okay, but if God's for you, who can be against you? There's a better job coming. You say, yeah, my transmissions fell out in the street. Okay, great. But if God be for you, who can be against you? It's not that there aren't evil powers against you. There are. But God is so much greater. Put your eyes on God. Uh, Not on the tragic circumstance. God is never going to break His covenant with you. Listen to what Paul says. He He keeps driving this home now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Have you ever thought about that? What could then separate me from God's love? Well, he runs a list here. Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword, can any of that separate you from the love of God? The answer is no. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to remind you this morning, you are inseparable from God's love. I don't know what you're going through, but God's love is wrapped around you right now. He'll never break His covenant with you. If you put your faith in Christ, you are His covenant people. It's not that we won't go through some hardships. It's not that we don't have to make some decisions. We do. It all has to play out, but God's with you. Life is not random. God is in charge. He's living in us and through us. He's working His will through us, and nothing... Listen to my voice. Nothing can separate you from God's love. As for Esther, (laughs) Esther is no longer a trophy wife. God bless you trophy wives. Uh, I I hope God gives you beauty and all of that, but she's no longer a trophy wife. She still has the beauty, but what I'm saying is something's happened in her life. She's more than a pretty face and a nice figure now. She is no longer a trophy wife. She has identified with God and she's living as one of God's covenant people. Her life is energized. You can feel the shift in the story. She is courageous. She puts her royal robes on now, not in shame. She realizes God can use the power that's been given her. God can use the crown on her head. 
God can use the royal position that she has, and she's going to use her authority and her influence for God's purposes. That may be one of the most important sentences in my sermon this morning. Whatever you are and whatever you do with your life, use your life to advance God's purposes, to advance love, to advance kindness, to advance the gospel, to ease human suffering, to make the world a better place. We come to the last scene now. True identities are revealed. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Okay, Esther, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, I want to ask you to grant me my life. Can you see his head spin around right now? My life is in danger. And king, if I please you, I want you to grant me my life. What? This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as female and male slaves, that I would have just kept quiet. wouldn't be worth troubling you about. <laughs> king, darling, someone is trying to kill my people. And therefore, king, darling, someone is trying to kill your queen. You remember that plot? That Papa Mordecai uncovered to assassinate you and take your throne? Well, someone powerful is plotting against you again. And your queen is in danger. Now, knowing what you know about Xerxes, what do you think is about to happen? He's about to fly into a rage. Here we go. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he? I'll tear him limb from limb. The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, an adversary and an enemy king, it is this vile Haman sitting at the table for three. Then Haman was terrified. Yeah, I bet he soiled his trousers. <laughs> the king got up in a rage. I can see cups flying. I can see furniture being thrown off the patio and through the glass window. I can see the king just trying to... Uh, he, he lost his stuff right there. The king gets up in a rage, verse 7, left his wine and steps out into the garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. So I want you to set the scene in your mind. King's just furious, stomps over there. He's right there. Just stepped out into the garden. He's throwing stuff. He's cussing like a sailor. Haman in here is, is like, the blood is drained from his face. Esther is reclining on a couch eating dinner. Haman throws himself on top of Esther, begging for his life. Peripety. Just as the king returned from the palace garden into the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch 
where Esther was reclining. And the king said, well, we can't record what he said, but we've got part of what he said. The king said, will he even molest the queen while she's in the house with me? Wow, you've got some gall. And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered him with the black. Can you see the guys with the black bag? Right over his head. Zip ties around his wrists. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who's serving, says, uh, King, there's a pole out there reaching 50 cubits, which stands by the house of Haman. He had set it up to kill Mordecai, her daddy, and your trusted advisor, the man you honored yesterday. And the king said, impel him on it. Right up through the anus and right out the mouth. I, I, I don't know if there's a worse way to die. You used to talk about crucifixion being terrible. So they impaled Haman on the pole. He had set up for Mordecai. And the king's fury subsided. Let me close it this way. The tables have turned. Peripety. What a story. So here's my closing question to you. So who gets life and who gets death? The author wants you to contemplate this question about right now. So who gets life and who gets death? In the Old Testament, life and death are determined by identification with a people. Esther's destiny is tied to the destiny of her people. If God's people perish, she'll perish. If God's people prosper, she'll prosper. Like Moses... Like Moses, she made a decision to share the fate of her people, God's people. Now, I want to jump to the New Testament where you live. In the New Testament, life and death are determined by identification with a people. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to his people is found in Jesus Christ. Identification with Jesus Christ is what constitutes us as his covenant people who have been delivered from death to eternal life. In John 14, Jesus said these words, Because I live, you also will live. And on that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me, and I am in you. Covenant relationship. To be outside of a relationship with Christ is to be under the condemnation of death. John three eighteen, they are condemned because they have not believed on the Son of God. Who lives and who dies? It's determined by identifying with a people, a covenant people who have a relationship with God. In the good news this morning, 
The gospel is that God has invited people of all races and all backgrounds and all social groups, any of you and all of you, he has invited you to be born again into his new covenant people who have been saved by God's grace. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Maybe God used a simple decision of attending church on this holiday weekend to bring you to this moment so that you could receive Christ as your Savior today and enter into that covenant. Who gets life and who gets death? Well, it depends on how you align yourself with Christ. Christ. 